0: It is Ted Bohorquez here with News Talk KZRG. Welcome to this week's episode of Plot Summary. Now, what Plot Summary is, is basically everything we talked about on the morning news watch at News Talk KZRG this week. I'm going to go ahead and take all that and condense it down into about 45 minutes. Why am I doing this? Well, I did the math, and as it turns out, Peter, Steve, and myself, we talk for about 15 hours a week. That's a lot of Steve time. And it's likely that you are not tuning in for 15 hours a week, but there's a lot of important news and a lot of stuff that happened that I'm sure you're very curious about. So I wanted to condense it all down for you every single week. That way you can get sort of a summary of what happened and be in the loop and in the know with what we discussed without actually having to watch all 15 hours. So that's what I am to do. And that's what we're going to be doing today. So without further ado, let's get into what us three good-looking guys were going on about this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. Inflation, that was a big topic this week, and uh, a bombshell came out. Democrat Representative James Clyburn of South Carolina claimed during an interview this week that the Biden administration and congressional Democrats knew full well that their moves would spur inflation. They knew full well that would happen. Now, a little background on James Clyburn. He isn't just a guy. He isn't new. James Clyburn has been in the House for a very long time. He works very closely with Nancy Pelosi. He works very closely with Chuck Schumer. He whispers in Biden's ear. He's involved directly with what is going on in the big decision. So this guy knows. He's in the know. This individual, this Democrat, is in the know on the dealings and behind closed door trading that goes on in the Democratic Party. And he came out and he just fully admitted. That the Biden administration knew full well that these moves would spur inflation. The reason why this comes as a shock, in my mind, is that for so long, the Biden administration was denying inflation. They were saying, no, there is no inflation. Or they were saying, no, the inflation isn't actually that bad. And yet, before they even made the decision, they knew how bad it would be. So they were lying because they knew there would be inflation, even though they said there isn't. And they knew how bad it was, even though they said that it wasn't. Now what Congressman Clyburn said is, quote, all of us knew this would be the case when we put in place this recovery program. Anytime you put more money into the economy, prices tend to rise. And we do know that price gouging takes place, and that's what Senator Warnock is concerned about in Georgia. So yeah, they knew. They knew this would happen. But wait, there's more. He then went on to say that, quote, we knew the moment we went to aid the Ukrainians, the Russians would do what they possibly could do to undercut this administration. So they cut this deal with OPEC nations to reduce the production of oil so as to drive the prices of gasoline up, end quote. Couple of things here. One, he went ahead and admitted what they were doing and then he immediately went ahead and went, ah, but actually it's the Russians fault. This is very typical of them is sort of this double play here is they say. The Biden administration knew inflation would rise because of his decisions. Inflation went up. But in reality, the whole gas price issue, the whole oil and energy crisis, actually, that is Russia. That's sort of how they play this game here. It's sort of like fishing. You know, you let a little lead out and then you tighten. You let a little lead out and you tighten. And that's what they're doing. They let a little lead out by admitting that the Biden administration knew that they were causing inflation. And then they tighten right back up, get you on the hook with the whole, Well, really, it's Russia's fault. So do I give a little bit of credit to James Clyburn? Yes, I do give a little bit of credit because at the end of the day, what the Democrats are doing is wrong. But we need to admit to it. If you're a kid and you break a vase, what you did is wrong and you need to be punished. But if you go and hide it and you deny it, there's always going to be this aura of distrust within the family at your home. And America needs to have that. They broke the vase. The Democrats ruined it. Fine. We we need to go and we need to properly, you know, maybe not punish, but we need to go back and and really assess who we give power to and who's in charge. I think that's a fair consequence for what is going on here. That being said, we can't even do that until they actually say, hey, we messed up Our bad. And that's all I'm looking for. And that's what we got. But then they went and said, but really, we didn't mess up here. Actually, it's really Putin. Now, another thing with this whole Putin thing is uh, it's a little bit. Uh, what's the word egotistical to think that? Putin thinks about Joe Biden all that much. We in America try to forget Joe Biden as much as we can. You think Putin is sitting around and thinking, how can I undercut Biden? No, he's not. He's waging a war. He has a lot of domestic issues. His economy is in shambles. He's locking up a lot of political prisoners as well as a lot of members of the media. He has to worry about his bloc nations joining NATO. His friendship with China is clearly not as strong as he once thought. All of this is going on. And you think he's sitting there saying, how can I undercut Biden? How can I really stick it to Joe Biden? No, he's probably not. Do I know that for sure? Of course I don't. But it's definitely a safe bet. So, yeah, it was very refreshing this week to hear that the uh, Democrats are still pounding the same drum. Uh, You know, eventually, maybe they'll actually get good at playing it. But so far, um, we have not seen that. Speaking of inflation, something else that we talked about it on the Morning News Watch this week at News Talk KZRG, which brought Steve Scott. Great concern was the effect that inflation has on food. And the reason it brought him concern is because, let's be honest, it's really cutting into his Pop-Tart purchases. As it turns out, Americans are cutting back on food to save money due to inflation. In October of 2021, so last year, 15% of people surveyed said that they were buying less food. In September of this year, that number is now 24% of people are buying less food. It's gone up almost 10%. Food, people. We're talking about food here. We're not talking about movie tickets. We're not talking about clothes. This is food. We're not in a third world country. This is the United States of America. What on earth are our citizens doing not being able to purchase the food that they want? Now, let's break down those numbers, because, again, 15% of people buying less food last year, 24% of them buying less food this year. Let's break down those numbers by income. Now, this is where it gets a little bit scary, frankly. This offset is greatest among those making less than $50,000. So when the Biden administration says this isn't hurting the poor, or when the Biden administration is saying that we're all in the same boat, The numbers say otherwise. The actual statistics say, no, Joe, you're wrong. Because according to the actual numbers, those making less than $50,000 a year, last year, 16% of them were buying less food. This year, 27%. The general average of this year is 24% of people are buying less food. Those making under $50,000, 27% of people are buying less food. Meanwhile, 15% of those making between $50,000 and $100,000 a year are buying less food. And of those making more than $100,000 a year, 19% of them are buying less food. So I know numbers are a lot, and it's a lot to just listen to without actually seeing and writing, but to make it real simple, 27% of poor people are buying less food, 15% of middle class people are buying less food, 19% of rich people are buying less food. What's the biggest number there? 27. Who is that? Those making less than $50,000 a year. So is it disproportionately affecting working class Americans that are just trying to get by living paycheck to paycheck? Uh, I would certainly say so. And the numbers would certainly say so as well. Very interesting. And that's just the effect that inflation alone has on food. Now, the Wall Street Journal conducted a survey of economists. 63% of economists surveyed say that they expect a recession to hit within the next 12 months. So we're not even talking the recession impact on food. We're talking just the inflation impact. So, okay, so we have inflation already a problem. That's established. Now, we also have established from the majority of economists that a recession is going to be coming into play. Okay, there's two. And then they went ahead and conducted a little survey of CEOs. They asked more than 1,300 CEOs. Now, and a little background here, these CEOs aren't, you know, the guy on the corner with the flower shop, much respect to him, mind you. But the CEOs they asked were those that are running companies that make more than $500 million a year, $500 million a year, minimum, 1,300 of the CEOs running those companies. And of those 1,300 CEOs, 90% of them expect a recession. And of that 90%, more than half of them plan layoffs. What a perfect storm that we have cooking for us. We have inflation, check, recession impending, check, and large corporations laying off working class Americans, check. But the Biden administration seems to think that the most important and pressing issue of today's day is gender affirmation. I can't wait to not have food or money, but be able to refer to myself as a beautiful girl. Exciting news. Now, I know that's a lot of impending doom speak, and uh, we tend to do that on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG, unfortunately. But another poll came out about the economy that really was a light at the end of the tunnel for me. It, it really, this is good news, I think. According to a CBS and YouGov poll, 70% of voters blame Biden for the economy and the way that it's in right now. That is so inspiring to hear, honestly. Not that people are mad at Joe Biden or this and that. It's so inspiring to hear that people are actually waking up and paying attention. Let's wake up to the reality. And the reality is that the way that this administration has been running things has led to the state that the economy is in. Now, COVID did not help the economy. That wasn't Biden's fault. The war in Ukraine did not help the economy. That was not Biden's fault. The supply chain issues, those were not Biden's faults all the numbers are saying that Biden didn't put us in this position necessarily. But all the numbers are saying that he made it worse. Biden could have gotten us out of this recession a lot quicker and a lot less painfully. But he chose not to. And 70% of voters are now seeing that and saying, Biden, what are you doing, man? I love it. I love it. Finally, people are starting to realize 70%. I mean, it's great. It really is. Now, 68% of those polled said that Biden could be battling inflation better. He could be doing more. Remember, as of today, inflation is up 8.2% year over year, which that sounds confusing, but what that means is that money is worth 8.2% less money today than it was on this day one year ago. So inflation is up year over year, 8.2%. And keep in mind, the goal is to have inflation at 2%. That is what all economists say. That is how we've been running, not just us, but Every single nation in the world that has an economy, their goal is to have inflation at 2%. Ours is at 8.2%. And that's low for Biden right now. It was much higher. It was in the 9% earlier in the year. So that was inspiring to me this week. And um, it was inspiring to many to hear that 70% of Americans are finally realizing Biden is to blame, if not entirely, at least in part. And that's great news, I think. And then uh, this was kind of funny. Peter got quite a laugh at this one this week after this poll came out. And after uh, people were talking about it in, you know, the media and the world, the White House press secretary then said, well, actually, Biden has been doing a lot of work to fight inflation. She said, quote, that this administration has done the work to fight inflation, end quote. Okay, fine. If this is Biden doing the work, uh, then do different work. Because whatever you're doing, you're making it worse. The work that you're doing is making inflation work. So if this is you doing the work, I beg you, please, please stop doing the work. Because, I mean, if you step away, all that could happen is it gets better. <laughs> if this is you doing the work, you're making it worse, Joe. What are you doing, my man? So that's what was going on with good old Sleepy Joe this week. Um, a couple of other developments in the economy includes California. California my home state. Shout out. Well, I have one message for you, CA. Listen to the bell, gross bar. It tolls for thee. The state of California is starting to see a mass exodus, not just of its citizens, that has been happening, but also of its companies and of its startup activity. All of this is resulting in a much lower tax revenue income for the state. In 2021, California saw 81 companies launch IPOs. What an IPO is, when a company goes public, which is a huge economic milestone, not just for the company, but also for taxes, those companies list their initial public offering. That's how much they are going to sell their stock for right out the gate. Now, obviously, the stocks rise and fall based off of consumer demand and what people are willing to buy them. But when they first come out of the gate, the first time they're selling their stocks, they set the price. That's the IPO, the initial public offering. In 2021, 81 companies launched IPOs. This year, nine have launched IPOs. That's almost nine times less. Actually, that is nine times less. That's exactly nine times less IPO offerings this year, which is all just tech speak for less tax revenue. Why is this happening? Why are less companies launching and why are more companies leaving? Well, according to several major CEOs, including Elon Musk, They moved their companies to other states because of high taxes, lax bail reform, free and open drug use, chronic homelessness, and exceptionally stringent COVID-19 standards. Those are the reasons, according to all these CEOs, why they are no longer participating in the California economy. That is what I mean when I say you reap what you sow. These were the rules you wanted, California. You got them. What happened? Everyone left. California has the highest state tax rate in the country. They have a 7.25% sales tax, flat. That doesn't include city ordinance taxes. And their top income tax bracket is 13.3%. To put that in perspective, Missouri Governor Mike Parson just fought tooth and nail to lower Missouri's top income tax bracket from 5.3% to 4.8%. Missouri's was at 5.3%. We thought that was high. California's is at 13.3%, more than double, more than double the tax rate. And California's wondering why people are leaving. So that was the bulk of what was going on in the economy this week and pretty much what we discussed economy-wise on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. There was a pretty big development this week with in Europe in terms of the war of Ukraine and what is going on with energy. The West, and by the West, I mean the U.S. as well as Western allies in Europe, they don't want to buy gas from Russia due to the war. And a little, and you know, if you don't know why, the idea is for every barrel of gas we buy from Russia, the money they get, they immediately put into buying guns and ammunition to then shoot at allies with. So that's sort of why we don't want to. Well, winter's coming. Little fun fact for you. We are in October. Winter is on the way. And European winters can be sometimes pretty rough, especially in places like Germany, especially in places like England. Europe might be in trouble this winter because they're getting the bulk of their energy from Russia. Why? Because they're going green. They wanted to do the windmills and the solar panels and, uh, you know, get rid of all gas and natural fuel and all that. So they did. Good for them. Thumbs up. Now, you know, their hookup, Russia, (laughs) is now going to war with them. So... Guess what? They don't have energy now. But as you can see here, there's a bit of an issue. What are they going to do? Well, Turkey, Turkey's in NATO, made a deal with Russia where basically Russia is now going to send gas to Turkey and then Turkey will then have it under their control and then the West can then buy gas from Turkey. I'm not a math guy. I'm not an economist. But won't Russia still be getting the money doesn't Turkey have to buy the gas from Russia and then we buy the gas from Turkey and then Turkey uses the money they earned to buy more gas from Russia? At this point, you know, if that's the plan, we might as well just skip a step and buy straight from Russia. As a matter of fact, it would actually be cheaper because Turkey has to sell it at a higher price than they bought it from Russia in order to, you know, make a profit and make sure that their infrastructure is withstanding it. What a, what a roundabout way to make gas more expensive and still give money to Russia. We're, we have the worst of both worlds. Russia's still getting money to fund the war, and gas prices are going to continue to rise. <laughs> I mean, how is this possible? How did they find a way to make gas prices continue to rise and Russia still get money? They did it. Never underestimate these people. Now, all this Turkey talk and Russian power talk, this all comes amid the Nord Stream pipeline situation that we talked extensively about this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. The Nord Stream pipeline is basically there are two pipelines. There's the Nord Stream pipeline and there's the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Those pipelines run from Russia underneath the Baltic Sea and into Europe. And that's how Europe buys their gas from Russia. They don't, you know, they don't boat it over in literal barrels, right? They actually sift it through these pipelines that are running underneath the Baltic Sea. Very similar to the setup that we have in our home. A couple of weeks ago, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline exploded just out of nowhere. Again, there are two of them. One of them just fully exploded. Nobody really knows why, but there was a lot of concern of potential sabotage. Does sabotage make sense? Yeah, it does. We're in a time of war. People are going to sabotage things. Is that what happened? Nobody knows. It could have been an honest to God accident. Those things happen all the time. Denmark went ahead and did a full blown investigation. Um, Denmark is famously a fairly neutral nation. They're not really involved right now in the war in Ukraine in any way. So both sides sort of allowed them, yeah, you go and do the investigation. What led to this Nord Stream pipeline explosion? Well, they came back with the results and they said what caused the explosion was a series of powerful explosions. (laughs) that was their findings uh that a series of powerful explosions caused the explosion i could have told you that you needed to send denmark in you could have given me 50 bucks a free trip to the baltic sea and i could have correctly determined that what caused the nord stream pipeline explosion was this series of powerful explosions so i'm very glad that we got that all figured out thank god for denmark now jokes aside, in all seriousness, it was a big issue, this explosion, uh, because it just created high international tensions. Now if we were to go down the rabbit hole of assuming it was sabotage, the question then is who did it? Who sabotaged it? Well, a lot of military experts and economists have actually been speaking out this week about that very question. Who would have the motive to sabotage the Nord Stream pipeline? There are two schools of thoughts here. The first one is that Russia sabotaged the pipeline. The reason why they might do that, according to these individuals, is that it would further increase the price of natural gas. Energy from Russia was already hard to get due to this conflict, making prices rise. Now, all of a sudden, that supply is cut in half? People are going to be willing to pay a lot more for it, given the fact that it just became a lot rarer and harder to get. Was that Russia's play? Did they damage their own infrastructure in order to rise prices? Possibly. Very possibly. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, some individuals were claiming that America did it. Why would America do this? Well, the argument is, is that with winter coming, and now that Europe doesn't really have any energy or a way to heat their homes, they're going to be faced with a very difficult decision. Do they buckle to the will of Russia and repurchase their energy just so that way they have a shot of surviving winter? Or Do they man up and say, we're in a time of war, we need to buddy up here, and we need to just endure? Nobody knows what Europe's going to do. But some theorize that America may have blown up the pipeline to hedge their bets by ensuring that Europe does not make the decision to go with Russia. If Europe decides, actually, we're going to start buying Russian energy again, well, guess what? They can't. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't, because the pipeline is destroyed. Just a theory. Nobody really knows. Again, all the Danish police were able to determine was that an explosion caused the explosions. Theorists, economists, and and war strategists from a, a wide spectrum came up with these two competing theories. Russia destroyed it to rise prices, or America destroyed it to ensure Europe doesn't go back with Russia. Nobody knows what happens. Those are the arguments. Speaking of the war in Ukraine, something that is not very well advertised is Elon Musk's involvement. This week, Russia bombed two-thirds of Ukraine's energy infrastructure, took out their internet, took out their power, took out everything, and yet the Ukrainians are still able to communicate with one another and strategize fairly complicated military operations. How are they able to do that? Well, Elon Musk, believe it or not. Uh, Yeah. Which, by the way, how random is that? Elon Musk has been providing Ukraine with free internet that cannot be touched by Russia that Just to help out. As we all know, Elon Musk has launched his Starlink satellites, which provide internet to rural areas via space, essentially. He's now organized it in such a way that Ukraine can have access to it and Russia can't touch it. I mean, in theory, they could. But if they do, then America is going to fully march into Russian land with the military. So they won't. Now, Elon has been hemorrhaging Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars every month to provide free internet for the war effort in Ukraine. Good for him. Nice guy. Well, eventually it got to the point where Elon's like, I can't afford to keep this going. So one of two things needs to happen either A, you need to end this war, or B, I need to start getting some sort of kickbacks because we can't keep the lights running for free. We just can't afford it. And that's when big government stepped in. A pro big government Republican, David Froome, tweeted, That if Elon Musk takes Starlink offline for Ukraine, then the government should seize Starlink. Uh, red flags, anybody? American politicians, and Republican nonetheless, is advocating that the government seize Starlink because this free market, private company entity won't do what the government tells him to do. Bit of a red flag. When Steve Scott heard that this week on the Morning News Talk at News Talk KZRG, he said, "Can we do the same thing with Pop-Tarts and then we all vote to make Pop-Tarts the official food of the United States? Uh, to which Peter said, Steve, enough. Enough with the Pop-Tarts. So that's what was going on this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG in terms of the economy and the war in Ukraine. This week saw a high number of sort of political outbursts that were going on, the big one that really riled up some feathers was Stacey Abrams. She's a Democrat who is running for governor in Georgia. Now, I, I don't know if you remember, but she was the one that suggested that the heartbeat sound that exists at the six week mark in pregnancy, she said that sound was manufactured and that there was this big cabal of doctors that all agreed to play basically this fake sound to convince you that the baby was alive at six weeks. She was the one that said that. Well, she's back at it again. Good old Stacey Abrams. And she suggested that The best way to battle inflation as an individual and as a family is to have an abortion. She said the reality of inflation is that children are a huge burden on your wallet. And the best way to save money is to not have children, is to to terminate your pregnancy. If you have an abortion, you save money. (laughs) Now... Technically, that is true. I suppose that, you know, you you save on hospital bills. But, you know, I would also save a lot of money if I just went ahead and killed all my neighbors. You know, then that would drive the prices real low. All of a sudden, there's nobody but me purchasing goods. I have uh, successfully cornered the market as a consumer. So, yeah, you can kind of go down that logic pool. You know, I could also increase my my odds of getting a new job if I kill every single person that is also trying to get the job. Yeah, that is true. You could go down that rabbit hole. Is that something we want to do? I don't know. Senator Ted Cruz had tweeted out, killing your children is not a solution for inflation. (laughs) Well, according to Stacey Abrams, it is. Uh, According to her, the best way to fight inflation is to Abort every child there is. So that was uh, definitely pretty wild. The media, though, did not really report on it all that much. Well, conservative media reported on it quite a bit. Liberal media didn't really have much to say, probably because it's a fairly reprehensible thing to say and they didn't want to, you know, actually defend it. Speaking of the media, according to a Gallup poll, 7% of adults in America have a great deal of trust in the media as a whole. That's not surprising. You have Stacey Abrams say stuff like the best way to fight inflation is to get an abortion. The media doesn't cover it. Of course, only 7% of American adults have great trust in the media. According to this poll, 28% of adults say that they have low confidence in the media and 38% of adults say that they have no confidence at all in any major media outlet. Now, this may not come as a surprise to you, but it was actually big news. And the reason why is because this is the first time in American history that polls say that more Americans have zero trust in the media as opposed to some trust in the media. For the first time in American history, the majority of Americans are saying that they have no confidence in the media at all. So just in case you're asking yourself the question, was it always like this? the answer is no according to these statistics the answer is no pretty wild pretty wild but on that note and again going back to political happenings this week aoc the notorious aoc she's been running a series of town hall meetings uh this was this has been happening for a number of weeks it's actually kind of her thing she goes and hosts these little town hall meetings i actually think it's pretty cool i think more congress people and senators and governors and mayors should hold town hall meetings to get to know their constituents but Protesters took over the town hall meeting that was being run by AOC and they were chanting AOC has got to go. (laughs) Now, on the surface, you would immediately think, yeah, well, it's about time some conservatives got in there and voiced their opinion. No, that's not what happened. These were liberal constituents. They were protesting AOC because she's not liberal enough. AOC isn't liberal enough. What on earth do these people want if AOC isn't liberal enough? Whatever it is, hopefully they don't get it. Now, one individual showed up with a drum, and he was busting out a sweet tune that everyone was sort of chanting and singing along to to sort of blast AOC. AOC, at first, she didn't really do anything. She was sort of, you know, pseudo-respectful, more cowardly in the sense that she didn't actually stand up and say, okay, that's enough. She just sort of sat there and let it go on. And then it continued to go on. And it went on for so long that AOC was actually starting to get annoyed. And she was yelling back at them, saying... Let's engage in a conversation, let's have a debate. She was pleading with the crowd, hey, let's sit down and really talk about your side of the story. Let's really listen here. But the protesters wouldn't. This is a taste of her own medicine. The left famously does this where they don't actually engage in debate or in conversation, they don't actually attempt to defend their own opinions and ideas. They just shout really loudly until eventually people get really sick and tired of hearing it and cave out of frustration. And now she's getting a taste of her own medicine. These people aren't interested in debating or conversating with her. They're interested in just shouting until eventually she gives up, which is what the left has been doing this whole time, including AOC, by the way. And now she's finally getting a taste of her own medicine, which I think is very funny. Now, this is the second week in a row that uh, these town hall meetings she hosts has been interrupted by protesters last week they did it as well and uh along with her not being liberal enough for them the other big concern they have is that they view that she's voting for war uh she has been voting in lockstep with the democrats in sending billions of taxpayer dollars to ukraine they're not really upset about the economy i don't think they fully understand it but what they are upset about what they do understand is the implications that this has for warfare the more funds and money that we openly send to Ukraine, the higher likelihood that Russia will retaliate by sparking a legitimate war. And that was their concern. Valid concerns, by the way. Very valid concerns. Meanwhile, here in the four states this last week, then this was a big one that we talked a lot about at News. News.KZRG, just because our uh, sort of headquarters is right here in Missouri. The Senate race between State Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who's a Republican, and and Democrat Trudy Bush-Valentine. A little background, if you haven't been following, Missouri Senator Roy Blunt has been in the Senate for a very long time. He announced his retirement. Um, he's he's felt that he served the people of Missouri well, and I believe the people of Missouri also feel that way. So Roy Blunt is going to be taking a step back, and uh, the race to fill his shoes has been commencing. Now, on the Republican side, we have the current state attorney general, Eric Schmidt, and on the Democrats, we have Trudy Bush-Valentine. Trudy Bush-Valentine... Is the Harris of the anheuser Bush fortune. Um, everyone loves themselves a good Bush and thanks to Trudy's ancestors we the American people have that option. Now uh, this race has been going on for quite a while we've been covering it pretty closely but uh, some pretty big news came out this week about it. Trudy Bush Valentine's own brother publicly stated that he endorses not a sister but her opponent Eric Schmidt. Her own brother said that he doesn't understand why she's running for Senate. According to him, she's not very politically motivated. She's not very politically active other than this. She's not going because she believes strongly in one cause or another and that she's so inexperienced she wouldn't really understand exactly how to wield the power in any meaningful way. So... Her own brother believed that, essentially, if Trudy Bush Valentine were to be elected in Missouri Senate, she would simply be a rubber stamp for the Democrats. She would simply be there to be told what to vote for and what to push for and what to endorse on behalf of the Democrats, period. He doesn't believe she has the skill set or, frankly, the interest in doing anything independently of the Democratic Party. The brother also said that her running for the Democrats is actually kind of ironic because it doesn't really help them appear to be the little guy, quote unquote. That's the big thing the Democrats are trying to push for, that they're representing the underrepresented, that they are the voice of the voiceless. Well, Trudy Bush Valentine was born very wealthy. At no point in her life was she ever the little guy. As a matter of fact, you know, she touts that she was a nurse for a very long time. According to her brother, Trudy Bush Valentine did, in fact, work as a nurse in the St. Louis area for about a year and a half. Uh, And then after that, she sort of hung up the, the smocks and decided to pursue motherhood. Which, by the way, is very beautiful, of course. If that's what she wants to do, great. But I don't really think that you're allowed to walk around and say, I understand the working class, I was a nurse, when in fact you did it for about a year and a half, 30 years ago. Bit of a stretch. So, yeah, her own brother endorses Republican Eric Schmidt over his sister, Democrat Trudy Bush Valentine. Now, in light of this news, another little uh, juicy detail came up in relation to this Missouri Senate race. As it turns out, Eric Schmidt, the Republican nominee for Senate, his father worked the midnight shift at Anheuser-Busch. Trudy Bush's family employed Eric Schmidt's family to make beer. And Eric Schmidt, in order to make, you know, supplemental income for his family, because they actually were average Joe, hardworking, blue-collar Americans, Eric Schmidt himself in high school worked as a busboy for the Anheuser-Busch family. And he would also host tours on the weekends of their estate to those that were interested in the product. (laughs) You know, it's really quite ironic. At one point, it is very likely that Trudy Bush Valentine was up in her castle looking wistfully out the window and saw Eric Schmidt, a poor blue collar American worker, hosting tours to make money to put food on the table. It's very likely that happened. And here they are facing off one another. And Trudy Bush Valentine is saying, I'm the little guy. Eric Schmidt is just a rich guppy. He doesn't understand you. It is me who is the little guy. Very ironic indeed. We'll see how that race pans out. Speaking of four state races, the Oklahoma race for governor has been in full swing. The current Oklahoma governor, Kevin Stitt, is running for a second term. And the polls came in. He is trailing his Democrat rival according to two separate polls. He's currently running against Hoffmeister, who was a Republican, but actually switched parties specifically to run against Stitt. And if Stitt loses, that means that Oklahoma will have its first Democrat governor in over a decade. So a lot of interesting history sort of penning out here. Now, Hoffmeister has made education the center of her platform. Meanwhile, Stitt has made his platform mostly about the low unemployment numbers under him, which is true, good for him, as well as his hands-off approach to COVID back when that was a big thing. That has been a key part of his campaign. Now, there were a few key endorsements of this Oklahoma governor race. Republican and current governor Kevin Stitt did receive an endorsement from former President Donald Trump. That was a pretty big one. Meanwhile, the Democrat Hoffmeister has recently been endorsed by the five biggest Native American tribes in all of Oklahoma. That is also a pretty weighty endorsement. So sort of a clash of the titans here. Everyone is on the edge of their seat as they see what happens in Oklahoma. Meanwhile, in Arizona, there is also a governor race going on between Democrat Katie Hobbs and Republican Carrie Lake. A couple of developments that happened this week on the Morning News Watch that we discussed was that the Democrat, that Democrat Hobbs, refuses, actively refuses to engage in any debates with Carrie Lake, the Republican. Now, again, earlier, we had talked about how the Democrats tend to do that. They don't want to actually engage in debates. Instead, they just yell and shout louder than the Republicans. We saw that with AOC in New York. We saw that with Cory Bush in Missouri. And now we're seeing that with Katie Hobbs in Arizona. Katie Hobbs says that she refuses to debate the Republican because apparently Lake won't engage in rational conversation. That is Hobbs's claim. She said, quote, Lake just wants to put us somewhere. She controls the dialogue, end quote. Uh... No, I think Kerry Lake wants to put you somewhere where people can ask you questions like, hey, what are your thoughts on inflation? What are your thoughts on war? What are your thoughts on trans rights? Pretty reasonable. These people are, are choosing you to represent them. They probably want to hear exactly how you would do that and engage in debate. I think that's what Kerry Lake is going for. But I guess we'll never know because Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, refuses, still refuses to debate Kerry Lake. Again, both of them are running for governor in Arizona. We'll see how that goes. Probably not well for the Democrats, one would hope, but we'll see. Obama is set to uh, re-hit the campaign trail. Now, talk about a blast from the past. We got to laugh uh, this week at this one at News Talk KZRG on the Morning News Watch. Former President Barack Obama will begin to campaign on behalf of Democrats to shore up their chances across the country as these midterm elections are cooking up. And uh, a lot of people were asking, why is the current president not doing that? Well, Joe Biden is going around and he is campaigning on behalf of certain Democrats, but only about 12 out of 500 plus races that Democrats have skin in the game. Only 12 of them were interested in having Joe Biden campaign for Not a surprise. <laughs> I think if uh, Joe Biden campaigns for you, your chances of getting elected are actually lower So they called in the big guns. Good old Barack Hussein Obama. That's right. He's going to be sort of brushing off the dust as he heads back out into the political sphere. That was pretty much the update on him. We'll see how that develops in the following weeks. And finally, the last major political happening this week that we discussed on the Morning News Watch is the Warnock investigation. Warnock is a Georgia senator. He's a Democrat, and uh, he's one of the little guys. He really is a man of the people. He speaks for those that don't have voices themselves. That's sort of how he portrays himself, the image that he goes for. Well, as it turns out, Warnock owns an apartment complex in an impoverished neighborhood, and he is actively evicting underserved people. You know, him being one of the little guys, turns out he's a landlord, landowner, who's evicting poor people for past rent due notices as low as $28. That's the lowest amount. Somebody was $28 short on their rent, and Warnock is evicting them, evicting them for $28. And this guy's a Democrat, and this guy's supposed to be one of the little guys, and this guy's supposed to be helping out the blue-collar guy. Not so much. If you owe him $28, you lose everything, period. That's how much he likes the little guy. Now, Warnock also works in tandem with a church church, that owns a nonprofit. This nonprofit pays Warnock seven thousand four hundred dollars a month for housing, which, by the way, is tax free because it comes from a charity. So now you have this little guy, this this uh, small guy politician, who gets seventy four hundred dollars a month for rent that is tax free, and he owns property where he's kicking impoverished people out of their apartments because they owe him twenty eight dollars. Talk about the little guy. Now, Warnock is actually under investigation for this because guess what? It turns out you can't just collect tax-free money from a church for your own personal rent. Duh, duh, I guess uh, he had to learn that one the hard way. As it turns out, from 2011 to 2020, the charity of the church that he works with collected $2.8 million in donations, earned $4 million in operations, and more than $800,000 in, quote, other. No doubt that other were bribes. That seems kind of obvious to me. And then this is where the investigation really kicks in. This nonprofit that he is part of also applied for a $5 million grant from the state, which they then used that grant money again, taxpayer money. This nonprofit used $5 million of this taxpayer money to fix up the apartment complex that Warnock is now evicting people for for $28. And this charity, quote unquote, is not even registered with the state. As it turns out, this charity that he's running is not recognized by the state of Georgia. So if they're not recognized by the state, how is it that they're eligible to get $5 million of taxpayer money to fix up a personal property that they are using for profit and evicting poor people from? What is happening? How is he even in the running? I can't go and get $5 million of taxpayer money to fix up my house. How was he even in the running? Well, I'll tell you how he was in the running because of nepotism, because he's one of the people that are making those decisions. And he said, "Uh, we're going to go ahead and take this taxpayer money and we're going to give it to me. I'm just going to take it. I'm going to take this money and I'm going to fix up my own personal property so that way I can raise rent to make more money and evict poor people. That's what he did. I- I'll take the $5 million. That's what he said for my personal use. He's under investigation now. Are they going to find anything? Absolutely. Are they going to do anything? Probably not because he's a Democrat and he can do whatever he wants. So, yeah, Warnock, a Democrat senator in Georgia. That's what he's got going. That's uh, great news for all. Now, a couple of state government things that were going on this week that we discussed on the Morning News Watch on News Talk KZRG. New Jersey is suing big oil. Uh, New Jersey, the state, is suing five major oil companies. The lawsuit claims that the companies knew the environmental impact of fossil fuels, but did not warn the public or even misled the public on it. This lawsuit is not a new concept. More than two dozen other cities, counties, and states have already filed claims against ExxonMobil, Shell Oil, Chevron, BP, ConocoPhillips, and uh, even the American Petroleum Institute Trade Group. And this will not come to you as a surprise, but the first cities to be suing these oil companies are from California. Shout out to the Golden State. California cities were the first to sue the oil and gas companies. They did this back in 2017. Since then, many other cities and states have joined these lawsuits including most recently New Jersey. The other states that have pending litigation against these oil companies are Rhode Island, Minnesota, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Delaware. So New Jersey is not the first, and it appears they may not be the last. A lot of people have been wondering, okay, well, what are they suing them for? You know, what grounds do they have to stand on? Well, a lot of these lawsuits are modeled off of the big tobacco cases that took place back in the 1990s. Uh, You know, I'm sure you remember the tobacco industry said for decades and decades, oh, no, smoking isn't unhealthy. No, it doesn't lead to cancer. Tobacco's fine. Um, And then there was this massive lawsuit where now the government requires that they say, well, actually, it is. It is actually not good for your lungs, objectively and it is actually does cause cancer and is objectively unhealthy. So that is sort of what these states are modeling their cases off of while suing oil companies and gas companies. So we'll see how that pans out. Now on the flip side of that, in other state news, Missouri was one of the most recent states to pull their pension funding away from BlackRock. BlackRock is an investment company. It's one they are one of the biggest investment companies in the world. The state of Missouri announced that they are pulling $500 million worth of pension funds away from BlackRock. Now, the reason they're doing this is because the Missouri State Treasurer, Scott Fitzpatrick, uh, formally accused BlackRock essentially of prioritizing woke political agenda instead of making smart financial decisions with state pensions. Um, these investment companies say we, you know, BlackRock was saying we don't actually care if people are losing money in their pension. We want to support, you know, the woke agenda. Missouri was just the latest state to do that. Louisiana did this same thing last week. Missouri, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Utah so far are all the states that are pulling funding from BlackRock. All those states combined have taken away $1.5 billion from BlackRock. Sort of a um, right-back-at-you-guys sort of mentality. So there it is. Those were the big stories that we touched on this week on the Morning News Watch on News talk KZRG. I'm going to be putting these out every single week from now on. Again, We talk a lot. 15 hours is a lot of time to spend with the KZRG boys, so this was just a nice little way to condense all 15 hours into a much more digestible 45 minutes. Those were the big stories. Of course, you can always go onto our website, NewstalkKZRG.com. We are putting stories up there daily. Those are articles as well as Steve Scott puts his uh, little 30-minute newscasts up. He uploads those every day on our Facebook page as well. So a lot of ways you can get the news. Tune in next week and tune in Monday morning to Talk KZRG.